with Matt and Hillary and I'm Matt. I'm Hillary. Hey, hey. it's a a 50% woman podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. One of the few. Between the two of us, between the two of us, at least 50% woman. It's this and true and none. And that's the only two that I can, that I actually listen to. Um, Yeah. That's in reference to a tweet that happened just about an hour and a half ago. Um, just a funny, it's a funny way to put it, you know, I want the podcast to, to be 50% women. So does that just, what does that mean? You know, I think it's funny 50% because of the time, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a funny <laughs> thing too, because podcasts are, anyone can do them. They are not, there's no, there's literally no barrier for entry to having a podcast. So <laughs> what you're actually asking is like, because Yes, I think podcasts are dominated by men, as is everything in society. Mm -hmm. That's because men are the most insecure people in the world, and they (laughs) need to be talking at all times. And they also think that everything they have to say is super special, and that every and they has to be recorded for posterity, and everybody (laughs) needs to listen to it to everything that they say, all their stupid opinions about movies and politics, and that's what podcasts and all of art is. (laughs) Patriarchal. Horrible. Just, just stupid opinions. That thing that we call civilization, what we're all working for. Yeah. Isn't it yeah. Great, folks. I mean, I think it's it is kind of interesting because I think that people say that a lot, but I, I think actually there are, are a lot of podcasts that have women on them. They just are not the ones that the people who say that want to listen to, you know, like uh, podcasts that are like fan oriented, mm-hmm. right? I think a lot of those like have women on them or like the whole like serial true crime vein, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of those have women on them and yet like, and are maybe also made by women. I mean, serial must be like the most famous podcast and yeah. like, that's made by a woman. Um, but yeah, I'm, I always, yeah, anyway, whatever. It's a funny, it's a funny, a funny need, a funny need to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that is a funny need to have. There was a, yeah, anyway, we won't, we don't need to get any more into that. No. Are we good? Okay. Oh, no, no. I'm but done. This book only has a couple women in it, by the way. This book, Shaman, that we're reading. Uh-huh. Yeah. By it's Kim a, Stanley Robinson. It's a, du- it's kind of a dude's rock book if you think about it, it it is a kind of a dude's rock book this, it's a kind of a huckleberry finn dude's rock book this is a dude's rock chapter too oh my god it is a dude's i guess is is what they're doing rocking in this chapter <laughs> i mean i feel like when uh when thorn and click uh bust into the house and, oh sure that's kick oh, ass my god that is like that's so cool we should start at the end and then work our way to the beginning i just <laughs> to the beginning. i just i have to say like there cool are action a, scene. There are a lot of KSR novels. Maybe all KSR novels have some like really great action sequences in them, but that is like 
that is so it's so good like it's yeah. very hard not to want to like watch the movie of that oh yeah yeah that one is like a very cinematic scene wow like, yeah because it's so cool and we we can use this to get into like the meat of the topic for today i think which is like <laughs> the political economy of like these northern people these the northerns um, yeah these uh gende people because they burst in and then they have all these bags of fat everywhere and they just start spilling them everywhere and it get it, it burns the whole it sets the whole house on fire and inside the house is already super hot up up on the top because of how they build them and the the flames and the and then and then <clears throat> it's just fire everywhere and um that is so cool. Yeah. It's so yeah, it's extraordinary and it's really <laughs> extraordinary because it's like such a because like you've been with Loon for most of the chapter, not entirely. You've spent a little time with Thorn and Click, but mostly with Loon and in his captive state he's like so inward turned and he has, you know, he's looking for opportunities, but your sense is that just like they have there's so much power on the side of oh, yeah. of this particular group of people. Um, of the northers that there's no there's no way but this is like two two people and not just two people like in the terms of like this world like two pretty old dudes um <laughs> who just like come in and like completely completely upend things you know because like through watching and surprise and like just this like you know great like guerrilla style attack um yeah surprise fantastic. attack Fantastic. And like get get into your clothes that are like the scare that you can look the scariest in yeah. or something. And <laughs> um uh yeah, and just like the the uh getting the drop on them, the, the power of surprise, you know. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, it is it is a, is a chapter of so this is the chapter under the ice, obviously, where Elga is kidnapped by the tribe that had kidnapped her mm -hmm. that she had escaped from originally. At the at the eight eight festival, she's she's kidnapped, and then um, Loon goes out to get her back. After everybody else in his pack just goes like, "Nah, we don't want yeah. to," and it's like, yeah. "Fuck you guys, you guys are assholes." Um, and then so um, Loon goes to rescue her, this like thirteen year old kid, yeah. <laughs> to go rescue his wife. Yeah. Um, and then uh, he gets captured, of course, because he's a 13-year-old kid. And <laughs> um, he gets enslaved for like six months. And then Thorn and Click burst in and rescue him. And in and so a lot of it is, you know, the bulk of the chapter is him being in captivity and like encountering this other people, this other way of life. And also like, um, like you say, like, hiding within himself like in turning inward so that he doesn't call any attention to himself so that he can like actually plot his escape and there's one point in the chapter i don't remember where but it's he says like um he saw how um when you're a captive you sort of are complicit in your captivity yeah, because yeah. it's a coping mechanism essentially like it's a strategy of um, a strategy of escape. Oh, it's on 250. He saw how it was that kept captives helped to capture themselves just as part of staying safe, of biding one's time, of hoping, um, which is a really um, canny uh, observation about, you know, the 
ideology of slavery, I think, or like that shared kind of ideological space that one needs to be in to be in a master-slave dialectic, essentially. Yeah, to survive. It also made me think about, um, uh, there are a number of things in those sort of the reflections that Loon has, or what we get described about how he feels, um, that made me think of Ministry for the Future and like, Frank and uh, Mary, um, their relationship and, you know, like the sort of, um, and like responses to trauma or like the response to being in like an extraordinarily like anxiety producing situation overall, over a long period of time, like, um, you know, I can't identify, of course, again, (laughs) something so hard to identify with. I mean, it's an interesting, like, uh, you know, the idea that like actually like surviving, I think this is what you were sort of pointing to, but that like to, to survive in certain kinds of situations actually may entail putting on hold the possibility of like, um, you know, doing the kinds of things that might let you escape, right? Or like mm-hmm. what the kind of like balance between survival and holding on to the possibility of escape is. I just like, this is like a, um, um, I feel like this is a big theme in Octavia Butler's science fiction, mm-hmm. which in many obvious ways is like, you know, about thinking about the afterlife of, of slavery. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, she just, as a writer, like one of the ways that she uses science fiction is to like find situations in which like you really get put into the kind of like, um, how it is that to be captive, like, you know, in order to survive that you have to kind of be allow you are bound and you have to kind of allow yourself to be bound. Right. Because like, you have to be able to live in the bound condition, but like, what does it take to then also like hold on to the possibility if it's not going to be just like, you know, yeah, I'm just going to bust on out of there or whatever. And like, here we see like Luna's so aware that like, even if he could get away, the environment he's in is so formidable that there is, he can't really have a fantasy of like, I can just run, you know? Um, and at the same time, but at the same time, like he keeps doing these, like he makes these little hidey holes and he starts stealing things and he just keeps like hiding things, hiding things away, but without being able to like develop a sort of like, you know, at the same time, we can feel him like becoming really bound to this community in other kinds of ways, right? You know, in order to survive, but also just because like that's what his daily life is now. Well, yeah, and that part of it is that, you know, in order to actually have a, because he, he's, mm. he's well aware that he needs a strategy to, to get out. It's because it's not also, it's just not just him, it's Elga too. Right, um, right. He can't leave without her, even if, if he could leave, he wouldn't leave without her. So, the only way to do that is to develop a thorough, a thorough critique of everything that exists in the Jende people so that, and in order to do that, you have to inhabit that world as completely as possible to see um, what its weaknesses are so that you can then plot your escape. And so, yeah, like he, you know, one thing he does is that, it, that his, is his job is to go collect firewood um, and eventually they let him go do that on his own, which gives him a little bit more freedom to hide things away in this little, you know, boulder or whatever, underneath this little boulder or whatever. Um, but yeah, but, um, but the, uh, overriding 
you know, aspect of this chapter is just that he is a stranger in a strange land. He is like completely kidnapped and captured by um, these completely different people who don't speak his language. So he has to like, you know, to get by, he has to also learn their language somehow, even though no one is teaching him the language. He's, he's very clever and like picks up on some things um, and like learn their ways so he can learn their weaknesses and their strengths and their weaknesses. And he, at one point he thinks like, oh, I think I'm faster than these people. And then he sees how fast they are on snow and he's like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. I might not be as fast as I think I am. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this really interesting kind of, um, I mean, the language stuff is, is fascinating because like the language feels familiar to him, but then he finds he can't understand it. So we know that we're like hearing languages that must share, um, like share a great, you know, share some kind of base to some extent. Right. But that have diverged also in certain ways, um, which I find so very different than, um, in this chapter, again, when Thorne decides he's going to go and get Loon because nobody else is going to do it, um, uh, and and he decides he's going to take Click with him, again, we get like some attention paid to the language of the old ones. And even though Heather has learned how to speak reasonably well, it seems like mm-hmm. with Click, Thorne just like it's the languages are radically different. Like, mm-hmm. you know, at the level of like, you know, how the tongue works in the mouth, you know, mm-hmm. Um, whereas like the, the language of the Northers is, has a certain kind of closeness, mm-hmm. but also um, Loon can't understand it. And then that's kind of overlaid with the ways in which they just have life ways, many of which seem to be bound up in the place they live, right? In the particular sort of like ecological um, niche they inhabit uh, that, um, you know, that like, so Loon kind of can feel as though they are almost familiar, but not quite, right? And that uh, he can almost, he can kind of get what they're doing at different points in time. Um, He can put things together, but also there's no sort of like ease with them. Um, and it made me think about uh, our um, uh, listener, Michael, who follows us mm. on Twitter and is such a, from the UK, such a lovely person who's always very <laughs> positive and encouraging of us. Uh, he commented um, about us talking about the old ones, um, that it makes him think that like, um, this is like as close as KSR gets to writing about aliens, you know? Right. Yeah. And he, Michael compared it to the way that Le Guin in the, um, Hainish novels has like, you know, all of the people across, you know, this particular quote unquote universe are human, but they have these kind of like radical differences from one another. Right. So rather than getting the idea of the, the completely alien, right. Or the, you know, radical otherness, we instead get these very different kind of plays with what it means to experience someone as alien. And we mostly, Le Guin is also always mostly making you think about how much like uh, the designation alien or stranger like comes from you and your group and you're maintaining mm-hmm. the group rather than from any feature of the person that you're designating that way. And mm-hmm. I think that this novel does a really interesting um, plays with that really interestingly as, as well. And this chapter, part of what I think is cool about this chapter is that you get um, you ultimately get this triangulation between um the strangeness of click the old one 
the strangeness of the north of the northers, right, which are two different kinds of strangeness, um, and the ways in which those differences get navigated, kind of like differently, you know. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I just I think that's really fascinating. It's like so that that stranger in a strange land idea is actually like except um, you know. Um, not like Heinlein, but like a really, yeah, good, no, really good kind of thing to think about that this is about, I mean, and also Loon coming to a landscape that is in theory familiar to him, you know, uh, it's not like he's shocked that there is a sea there, um, but also he's never, he hasn't ever been in a place like this. And the descriptions of like what this Arctic world looks like are just extraordinarily beautiful and vivid. Yeah, 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 and it, um, what's fascinating about the where they are? So, I mean, I I guess it's kind of supposed to be like if Loon and his pack are in France, what uh, around like the Chauvet Caves, like these people are basically like Celts or proto Celts or something yeah. um, in the British Isles, and like we might have like the cliffs, the cliffs, the White Cliffs of Dover or something as a uh, because there's these like big, like huge cliffs or something. Um, but anyway, like, um, and that they've crossed the, ch the channel, right. Uh, because it's all iced over because we have a kind of an ice age thing, but what was I going to say? Um, but where, where we would expect them to be living really like hand to mouth in this extraordinarily harsh environment what loon discovers is that these are rich people yeah like um that uh not only do they uh not only do they like capture people and keep slaves to do a lot of the labor for them which helps uh mm -hmm. but also they um are because of what they're what the land provides for them which is like auto like seals um and whales they have like a tremendous amount of fat just laying around and fish just laying yeah. around that they could never, ever possibly get through it all. Like, and it's not that, so it's not as if they're hoard, hoarding it either. It's not like they're, it's not capitalism, obviously, yeah. but it is like immense wealth that produces a, a, a different, a completely different way of living and relationship, both like so internally, socially within the Jende people, but also externally to other peoples where they kidnap people and, and, and take them and don't treat them like people. Don't think other people as, uh, don't think of other people as people. Yeah. I think that that's a really, um, it, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, part of, one of the things I think is interesting is that part of why they have this wealth of food, right? I mean, in this, like, it just ties into like what we were, uh, that conversation we had with um, Daniel and Sean on the um, mm -hmm. Shred Magazine event, enough is as good as a feast, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we have this kind of question here about like abundance um, and they don't seem to have, they don't have certain kinds of abundance, right? They don't seem to have a culture where they like, um, you know, decorate themselves particularly, at least we don't see any of that. Um, you know, uh, we see that they seem to pass their time in ways that are relatively familiar from what we've seen of Loon's pack. So when the weather's bad, people sit around and make things inside. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, they, they have these two like, 
kind of fascinating advantages. And then one thing that we're supposed to think is a huge disadvantage, but actually is the source of their abundance, but that is the cold, right? And that is the 10 months of the year of extreme cold. Um, and yet that's what provides them with all the food that they have. Um, uh, and that's what provides them with the possibility of storing that food. That's the yeah. other, like that I think is such an interesting, so they just have like a raised platform, right. presumably to like keep everything out of the way of like the ice bears, um, <laughs> you know, and I mean, and I assume little, little creatures too, that would eat it, but you know, like the fish, they like to eat their fish frozen. That's something that like Loon notes about them. Um, but they've got the fish, like the seal parts, and then all of these just bags of fat, which we know is like a huge prize to people. Um, uh, you know, all of that can just be frozen. So they don't have to like, you know, in, even if like in Loon's pack, they were able to like put up that much stuff for the winter, like the, they don't have the same like temperatures that would allow them. I mean, they don't have a freezer, right? So essentially like these people just yes. have like a really different storage capacity. But the other yeah. thing they have, like besides the like, besides the slaves, the other thing that is like so oh, yeah. extraordinary is that they have domesticated animals. Right. Um, And so like, I just think that's a really, it's an interesting play here, right? Because like, you know, I think that we tend to think so domestication like proceeds, but then like goes along with like the emergence of like um, various kinds of agricultural methods, right? I mean, and probably yeah. like domestication of wolves and foxes into dogs like precedes that by a good chunk. Um, but here you can't because like they live in the ice, like you can't. They're not going to become farmers, but they have already they've already domesticated wolves um and that and so there is this like you know and there is this kind of sense of like so is it that they were already more hierarchical in certain ways and therefore it occurred to them to domesticate or uh is it that they had already started domesticating wolves because that's so useful in this kind of climate to have like a creature that can pull something for you um, and therefore it would also occur to you that you might, you know, like start kidnapping people and making them into your slaves. Like, you know, the kind of which comes, which comes first, like, um, yeah. It's so really, it's a really curious, yeah, question. Like which one, which one would come first? Like, okay, you've just killed a seal, but it's too big for you to drag on your own. So then do you like domesticate a dog, a, a wolf to help you? Or do you like kidnap somebody and hold them at spear yeah, point right. to help you? <laughs> or did you and your friends get a bunch of seals and then have all this extra meat and fat and therefore you could use that to domesticate a wolf, which would then like let you kidnap other people easier or whatever. Like it's like right, right, right. fascinating, but like, right. yeah, the captive mm -hmm. wolves, um, uh, they're keeping them inside an enclosure. It's on 256. But when the Jende entered, the wolves shrank back and rolled on their backs and peed themselves as they stared up, pleading at the northers, licking their own muzzles hungrily. The northers threw them chunks of the same offal they fed to the human captives, and the wolves eagerly snatched the chunks and wolfed them down. Then they crowded around the northern men, heads low, wagging their tails, and the northers reached out and grabbed them by the ears, then tugged their heads this way and that. And the wolves only wagged their tails harder, Loon watched this agape 
and marveled again when the men let the wolves out of the enclosure and snowshoed off with a few of the wolves dashing around happily around them. And when they came back to camp late that day, the wolves were still there with them, pulling chunks of wood and bloody meat over the snow at the end of ropes tied to rope harnesses around the wolves' forelegs, something like the harnesses people put around their waists to pull Travoy. Loon could scarcely believe his eyes. These people were, he didn't know what. So yeah, again, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's similar to talking about aliens. Again, it's just like these people have amazing um, technology um, that, and, and, you know, but also we don't see that they have any painting or any kind of like ceremony like that. Like they, they do things that are ceremonies that are, but that are not shaman stuff, but that he does recognize as something like, um, something like shaman stuff, something like knowledge uh, and religion and being able to read nature in certain ways to, yeah. to, to predict the future. Like they, they chase off the birds off of this cliff and then try to read the way that they fly to, determine whether it's going to be a good year or not yeah but of course again like whether it's going to be a good year or not and then loon interprets what they're saying to each other as like they thought it was going to be a good year and it's like what would be a bad year for them they're full of fat and fish <laughs> like everywhere like you know again so it's like ideological another ideological thing is like well the birds say that we're going to have a good year so it must be we're, we're going to have a good you know like so you know you know you're externalizing these condition these material conditions that you're reinforcing yourself with all the time onto some other like system of signs that just reinforce your own position in the world and your own ability to dominate whatever i mean and we don't we also don't like know the um you know because we know we really get nothing except a except maybe um, in the sequence when um, Loon and a couple of other captives are out on the ice with um, some of the men from the pack and their ice flow breaks off. And then there's a like really extraordinary sequence of them having to like wait to get back, to be pushed back to land and then to cross the black ice. Um, but we see very little because Loon's perspective is so cut off, you know, like, and, and actually in some ways, like literally since the slaves are kept like on a beneath the platform that is the right. lower platform in the house where most of the people spend their lives. So he really has like um, a very occluded perspective on them, you know, and there's some things that he sees and that he gets right. But like, he, I mean, when he sees the wolves, what he sees are wolves behaving in a weird way, but we don't really know whether to the Jende, those are dogs. I mean, right. they, they pretty clearly are dogs, right? I mean, they, um, to, to us, but like, mm -hmm. we don't know whether they like, you know, whether we don't, we don't know how they think about it or exactly how they perceive their world. And the, his sense that like, they don't seem to have a shaman in the same way but they but they also we see like a really extraordinary we see a few ritual things we know that they like also i mean i feel like the um when they get to the camp um this is on 251 um uh across the valley under the hills lofted columns of campfire smoke as they got closer 
Loon saw that there was a line of poles like bone needles standing between the Great Salt Sea and the smoke columns from the camp. Closer still, he could see they were the tr dead trunks of immense trees, trees taller than any he had ever seen and much taller than any growing up here. These barkless bare tree trunks were stuck upside down in the ground, their root balls at their tops all white and broken to the sky with skulls hung on colored string from the outer tips of the roots. They were much like the dead trees at the 8-8 and something in that Loon found reassuring. I mean, and we, you know, we see the trees again um, later too. And I think it, it's interesting that we see like that they do this like monumental, mm -hmm. this like monumental building that seems to be like probably ritual and also is like decorative or is mm -hmm. art or something, something like that, you know? Um, but again, like there's no, Loon doesn't have any scope for being, I mean, he's not an anthropologist, you know, so he's not going to be like, yeah, yeah. what does this mean? You know? yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Like you wonder what the Jende would think if they saw the way that Loon and the Wolfback live, like what would they marvel about? Because clearly there's like uneven technological development, what yeah. we'd say. Like the Wolfpack probably has much more advanced traps, for instance, than the Jende. The Jende don't even have to like hardly trap anything. They just... I mean, enough fish like wash up on the, on the, on the shore that they can just grab them or like seal, like the seal hunting is, you know, obviously radically different than like trapping a marmot or a, or a, or a deer or something like that. Um, what was I going to say, oh, there is that one thing. I mean, their relationship to their dogs, there's that time when they let a dog out and then surround it and then like beat Kill it to it. death. Yeah. And course it's just done mysteriously like they don't like the other captives don't know why but that really like um intimidates them and makes them very quiet and scared that they would just do that for seemingly no reason or whatever so they have this like yeah yeah weird relationship to you know it's not exactly like our relationship to our dogs obviously but it's also um well and i wonder also we don't i mean I, this is only stuff that I guess we can kind of speculate about, but like, you know, we see in the time that we spend in Loon's world um, that uh, animals are all relatives. Um, animals and people are mm. relatives um, and, and that animals are people are people too. Right. I mean, that seems to be what it means to be related that everybody's a person which doesn't mean that you don't hunt, um, but it does. But it does mean that you understand that, like you, you know, you thank the animal that you've killed, right? Um, and this is part of like the way in which you understand the entirety of the world, right? Is this kind of like network of relations, um, uh, and and network of like like spiritual endowments, you know, uh, the hor the horses that are are gods and that kind of right, that kind of thing. Um, and then it makes me think about how, like, you know, if we, if we think that like domestication, like the domestication of dogs is this like co-evolutionary process, right. That happens that like both reshapes people and reshapes the wolves into dogs at the same time. Right. Um, uh, but it still might, but it still seems to me like it's worth wondering about how much like domestication of animals itself um, changes what you think an animal is, right? And then not only produces like a human animal hier hierarchy, 
um, in this case, because, you know, you know, like you were just saying, like we see that the wolf dogs are open to being killed and we don't know whether that's, it's like ritual or that's just meant to be intimidating, or that's the way, that's the way they remind the other dogs that this shit could happen to you at any time or whether, whatever, we don't really know what it is, but that has to also, along with a kind of like abundance of animal life that you can live off of also has to change something in the way in which you think about like that network of relations, you know, like um, at the very least, like a kind of moving toward something more hierarchical away from something more horizontal, you know, I would assume. And it seems like domestication itself probably like plays a role in that, you know, like the animal becomes special to you by domestication, but it also becomes like um, not something you have a horizontal relationship to, but something that you have a hierarchical relationship to, right? Um, something that you dominate or that is a baby or, you know what I mean? Like, um, uh, it's just making yeah. me think of like, if you have a special relationship to something, is it necessarily hierarchical? Or like, and what are the ways where a relationship could be special and non-hierarchical at the same time? Well, I think that's like the, like Loon's relationship to his feeling about horses, right? That have like Mm. this particular kind of beauty for him or the Loon, you know, Mm -hmm. right? Um, the, you know, so I think that you can can have a special kind of attachment, um, but it's that like when the, you know, when the wolf becomes the dog, that lives with you and, you know, is in the, in some ways in a relation of exchange, um, mm-hmm. but also like, you know, at some point, even if this is not actually how that evolution happened, like the feeling humans took away from that process is that like, we're the boss of those right. animals, right? You know, and that can mean that like uh, later they can become pets who we want to like, you know, carry around and and give precious tidbits to or whatever, but we still decide like when they go to the doctor and whether they, you know, you know, and uh, when to end their lives too. Right. Um, Yeah. I would say, yeah, I would just reiterate something. I think I said a few, I don't know when, but it was like, what is dogs make people into people. Right. That was one. That's step one. Right. And then, Cats make pe- make people into cats. Yeah, <laughs> I have. I do not have a horizontal relationship with my cat. I have a very unequal relationship with the cats. They, it's their apartment, and I only live in it for sure. I mean, I think that like pet owning, um, you know, <laughs> you know, all pet pet owners who love their pets, like we, you know, we do want to think that like, uh, that there is something different there. Um, and at the same time, like you know. They're the little beings who live in our houses. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And also cats. Well, I mean, we've already seen a cat, right? I mean, and we- Yes, and, that and was, you know, I had a question about that. I mean, do, I think- does, does Heather's cat wake her up at six o'clock every morning by jumping on her head? I well, feel I think, like probably not. I think Heather is already awake then, but- um, <laughs> uh, But yeah, but we, but, but there, I mean, if that is the beginning, because of course, like, you know- um, you know, you see like domestication, I mean, dogs are the example, um, but, but presumably like cats get domesticated, like along the same kind of lines, right. When Mm -hmm. there is like some kind of like excess at the camp, 
right you know, yeah, the yeah. cat the cat gets used to like eating there and that's why heather's cat stays around you know right. because like there's always something to eat and even though the cat likes the other people that give it the finger bones they have a fondness you know the cat for whatever right. reason like enjoys the routine and so there we definitely get a representation of the cat as like having a different posture than to where i mean you know the cat's not gonna like pee on itself and roll on its back and be like you know please pull my please pull no. <laughs> my ears um but you know but also like the like you know, little animals too, like mice and other kinds of mm -hmm. things that like live at the edges yeah. are, are also part, you know, like part of like domestication is like opens kind of like outward into all of these relations that are, are transformed um, or become relations of like become co-relations. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the, I, the, the wolves here is like a fascinating, fascinating yeah. piece of this. Yeah, and that, and also just a, another plug for the James C. Scott Against the Grain uh, book because it's all about domestication. Like, domestication doesn't just mean, obviously, the domestication of like pigs and sheep, but it also does mean the domestication of mice and like pests and crop and like plants and of people. Like, people have to domesticate themselves. Um, what else to talk about? Well, I had a thing uh, that I, I wanted to say that this is like a slightly random thing, but I think it matters a lot for this chapter. I mean, so we've been talking about like, you know, the, a feature of the Norther's life is that it has a certain kind of a material abundance to it. I mean, that they have a lot of food mm -hmm. and also heat. They have a lot of heat, right? In right. that house so that like they... Mm -hmm you know, when they're, when they're inside during the day, um, they just sit around wearing their leggings and like, you know, but then at night, like they actually like, you know, they let that heat escape so that they can like sleep all snuggled up in their furs the way that they like to. So they have a relationship to like that. There's a kind of like, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but like thermal abundance too, mm -hmm. or something like that. Right. Um, and they, you know, they have to keep that fire going all the time. Um, and they also have to be good at making these like very small fires that can mm -hmm. survive, um, you know, like the, the winds and stuff like that. I mean, that, that I think is like another kind of feature of their abundance, but I, I think, I feel like maybe we talked about this a little bit last time, but something that I think is really cool about this book is here we are in the coldest part of the book in like the coldest ice age location, presumably like, mm -hmm. um, North, um, ice everywhere. Um, these are people who like understand like the ice and the snow and like these really intense ways. And yet like, um, this is this really rich landscape, you know, and there are things that are growing. There are these little trees, right? Um, right. Uh, but there are also like just these extraordinary natural features. Like there's nothing about, there's nothing about like the ice that is like depleting or um, abstract or, you know, this is a completely rich space a completely rich kind of like ecology that these people live in and i just i think that's so it's such a good counter to the vision of like the ice age is just like you know early humans wrapped in furs like staggering around in like by <laughs> the biting wind or whatever and like running away from mammoths you know like um 
yeah, I just like, I, I, I love the kind of like detail here. And even though like, I mean, you read, I feel like you read the whole chapter just thinking like, oh my God, how's he going to get out of there? How's he going to get out of there? Um, and then also like, wait, Thorne is going to rescue. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, um, the, tr- so like this area that they're in, they have these, there are these trees, but they're like dwarf, dwarf trees. They're like way smaller than the trees that, that, Thor, um, that Loon is used to, and they say it says um, the tallest trees were no more than head high. The trees, this is on two fifty seven. The trees were mostly the same types as those to the south, with more birch and larch, less pine and no oaks, but all of them small. Walking among these trees all day made Loon feel like he had entered some some land on the other side of the sky, where living things were smaller, turning ordinary people into giants. Maybe this was part of what had made the Northers so strange, so that it gives them this inflated sense of themselves this like experience of scale again yeah. like a scalar yeah. experience of like knowing like having a different um size relationship to certain natural objects around you like the trees but then at the same time they have this other experience of scale where like these giant like white ice cliffs and like the the sea as being so f- sort of f- f- basically flat and reaching out to the the frozen sea reaching out to the to as far as the eye can see or like the waves crashing up so like a like two again like two radically a, a radically different like spec like scalar spectrum of experience like the vast ocean and these like trees that are only your height but then you essentially i mean they're they're not living in trees like they're not tree houses like we've seen in other ksr novels but they kind of are because they use them as like posts and pillars yeah, yeah. and then wrap them in this leather so there's that but then also like the other thing about the landscape um, mm-hmm. that you were mentioning that impressed me too was when they take loon um out it's either on the ice or like when they say we're going into the wind um and and to go do their ceremony and they seem to be like following um a kind of a trail that is, you know, that they are well aware of, but that, um, but that if, if probably if Loon was there by himself, he wouldn't be able to follow it, but they're kind of rocks that are sort of half sunk in the ice that are a too big for a regular human being to have moved by himself. Um, and B have like cemented themselves there by Loon surmises the sun warms them up. They melt the ice around them. They sink a little bit. The ice freezes over them a little bit more. And so it gives them these like footholds or whatever. So that, and that the, the Jende are like more or less following this trail to where their ceremony ends up being. I don't know if they actually follow it or if it's, I think they do. So there's also this question of like, are they sort of creating, recreating the landscape um, or are they following it and then finding meaning at the end of where they come to or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And I I think that the that's interesting because the, um, you know, I mean, so much of this book is about like um, humans who have such an extraordinarily deep knowledge of the places that they live that it's like, it's more than, it is knowledge, but it's also more than that. It's like part of existence it's their form of life um and we get that in this chapter when um at the beginning when loon and pippi set off together 
Um, and Pippi takes these trail, Pippi takes trails that um, right. goes, goes in directions that Loon wouldn't go. And Pippi says something like, I've always been a straight walker, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he, you know, and he, he has this, he's so much like the, um, he's like the cognitive map guy, you know, mm-hmm. and the literal map guy. Um, but because he like, um, I mean, because we see him like, tra- he, he's the person who gives um, Thorn builds the map so that Thorne can see where it is that he's going to go. But he also has these like maps in his head that he overlays so that when he finds a more efficient path the next time. Right. Um, And we get that idea of like needing to follow the ways that animals would go as opposed to the way that you think that you would go. Um, And then the Northers like on the, on the ice, which would seem to be featureless, you know, or be marked only by like certain kinds of dangers like we see that both that they have like they have their own tracks and that they have this whole sort of like taxonomy of like landscape features including kinds of ice oh yeah change the ways that they proceed right so that so i feel like for the the kind of like for all the things that seem to be differences we see this like similar like just you know in immersion in the environment that like um is also about like knowing your way, you know, right. knowing how to get from place to place. And, and that, of course, like since the chapter ends with um, Loon and Elga and Thorn and Click, like, you know, just like running as fast as they can to try to get a head start on the Jende and the wolves, like, you know, that sort of con- then, then the this thinking about trails and paths and what's the difference between like having a map versus having a picture in your head um, then turns into like, well, how do you run How do you run away? Right. Or like, how do you outrun like people who are better suited to the place that you are and these animals that are like ideally suited to the place. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I just like love that. Like when we hear, we hear that Pippi thinks about how he walks when he's walking. And then when he, comes to talk to Thorne and Heather and say where what happened to Loon, he builds a bird's eye view, three-dimensional representation. Mm-hmm. And then Thorne makes a birch bark map mm-hmm. that he can carry with him. And the, there's just like, I can't find it right now, but there's like a beautiful moment when he, Thorne is like, okay, it could based on the map I have, there could be any one of like three possibilities here, but we just have to like go one way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's like, as they walk along, like they both, like the map is more and less useful at different points, even though it prove, you know, it ends up t- getting them to where they want to go, but there are times when it's representation is like completely inadequate. And then there are times when it's representation is something that they can like rely on. I just think, I think that's a very, that's cool. It's a cool part. Yeah. At a certain point, it just stops being useful because it's so far both beyond where Thorn has ever been, but also like, it's just a map. So it's not, it isn't the territory. Like he has right, to just right. sort of make do with what he's got. And then, um, then he, then he, when he makes decisions, uh, it was not an easy country to cross. And it, this is 292 and in at uh, the bottom. And then inevitably they found themselves following animal trails because then animals too are helping them along because it's, again, people and animals have a co-equal relationship essentially. Um, marked on land by all the animals who had crossed the plain looking for the easiest way. 
When the way is hard, the trail becomes clear, Thorne announced to the world every time he ran into one of these animal trails. And then this is a saying that Pika had repealed often. Um, and then Click has his version of it, which is way hard trail clar. <laughs> Tanku. Good old, um, good old Click. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the way that they, um, yeah, that's very cool. And the way they learn from animals too, or like associate themselves with them, again, is on display here, especially when they, break in to rescue everybody. It's like, they're like otters in a beaver den, just yeah. going crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but then Loon, the way that Loon, for instance, gets across the icy, um, the, the the black ice, uh, the, the very thin ice, he's like, he's like, okay, don't think like a loon this time. Think like a red lizard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Moving, you can, you can picture so clearly, like, uh, yeah. that's such a terrifying terrifying scene i would take a hard pass i would take a hard pass at that (laughs) uh also like also just like yeah imagining like yeah like thorn navigating with the with this map that's a rendering of a 3d map that a guy who claims to have remembered every single place he's ever been just made out of sand on the banks of a river yeah um i'll take my google maps thank you very much I mean, but I just can't imagine like, I mean, like I can't imagine hmm. being able to follow that, those kinds of directions, especially like, I, I'm just, you know, thinking about like that in really, uh, uh, in relation to living here in Maine, where there's like lots of hills and up and down and rivers and stuff. And it's just like, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I, I mean, I was actually, I was thinking when I was rereading this bit this morning, when I, I was thinking about the map, um, and when it's like just not clear from the map where exactly they need to go. And it both seems like, uh, yeah, I mean, this is like not an imaginable experience to me. And also it makes me think about like, you know, hiking in like state parks and having just the trail map. And and like when, when like the, the markers aren't very good and you're like, well, this looks like a path, but that also looks like a path, you know, and you just can't tell from the map because the map just does not have a level of detail. So you just are like, I'm pretty sure that this is the direction we're supposed to go. And then two and a half hours later, you're like, well, that was not the direction we're supposed to go. I was going to say then two and a half weeks later, you're on the news. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I just, just hear like the little bird sanctuary that's probably, that's like a postage stamp. Uh, I got lost. I've gotten lost there a few times, a couple times, um, because of just like, I think this is the trail. And then it's like, I'm the trail is gone. I have no idea where I'm going, but at least it's bounded by streets where I'm like, I can hear the traffic. Yeah, if I just yeah. like blast through this part, I can like make it to the street and look like an idiot bursting out of the woods or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, just, <laughs> Skills that again, like civilization as de-skilling, like we don't have these skills anymore. We don't have this relationship to the land, to, to animals, to plants. Um, that's not like taught us. We don't need to know it. Um, hopefully <laughs> I was thinking actually, this is a divert. This is a complete digression, but it's probably a, more appropriate for like the final episode of this season than right now. But I was thinking about, of course, as the end of Escape from L.A., uh-huh. the John Carpenter yeah. film. Yeah, because at the end of that movie, they they you know set off the electromagnetic magnetic pulse that shuts off all electricity on the planet and you know resets everything to zero essentially. And that's like um, it's a great movie, first of all, but it's also a very sort of nihilistic. Um, and almost quasi like 
almost fascist, I would say, like in, uh, imagination, at least like um, the bad version of anarchism, what you think of anarchism as, as being not not what anarchism actually is, but the kind of like survival of the fittest. Thing. Yeah, right, That's right. a bad version yeah. of like the end of civilization where we're going to shut everything down and then just only the strong will survive, i.e. only Snake Plissken will survive. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he like blows out a match, like looking straight at the camera. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I was just, I've been thinking about that ending in relation to this book because it's um, the vision of like essentially like humanity or human living together in this book is also antithetical to that imagination of the ending of whatever it is an ending of, uh, the ending of modernity, civilization, capitalism, whatever it's an ending of. Um, those two things feel like they're very much th this book and that the ending of escape from LA feel like their intention to me. Yeah. But that's yeah. just me. I'm a weirdo. Well, I was just, I was just thinking just to continue being digressive. Um, uh, but that show alone, do you, Oh, have you have, you told show? me about it, but I haven't watched it. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll write it down. I'm writing my sister, my sister and I are big fans of it, but the hilarious thing about alone. So it's like a survival show, obviously. Uh, um, and there are many hilarious things about Alone. Um, but one of the things that's kind of amazing about it is that the contestants on it, like some of them are people who live, um, you know, like in Alaska and they are like, um, whatever, like a lot of them are people who like lead wilderness <laughs> expeditions. And then right. others of them are people who just are like really obsessed with like what they like to refer to as bushcraft. So like knowing how to do all of these things. So these they just have these like crazy catalogs in their heads of like different kinds of snares and deadfalls with like that, you know, with names for them. Um, anyway, all there are so many fascinating things about the show. I mean, obviously like it, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not suggesting here that this is like a, an ideologically defensible thing. I'm, but it is quite enjoyable to watch. But the funniest thing about it is like, oh, so it's about survival, right? And it captures this like, um, you know, what I think is like a really dominant idea that we have about like what it is, what, you know, like if you have to survive in the wilderness, right? How would you do it? Um, and it's always, always about being alone. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the idea, you know, like that you, you know, what if you were all by yourself and, you know, right. would you be able to like make a lean to, would you know, which the poisonous mushroom is, et cetera, et cetera. Like fascinating, totally enjoyable to watch and to think about, but it's so funny that that like, um, the, the sort of, um, the fantasy is always this sort of like, you know, it's man against nature. And that always has to mean like the individual, right? Mm -hmm. How are you the individual mm -hmm. going to survive? And like on alone, it's all, it is almost always like a woman who will tap out because she really misses her kids, you know? <laughs> and it's always, it's only women thus in all the episodes that I've seen, it's only ever women who like are like, um, I really love it here. This is so beautiful and nature is so bountiful. And look, these are herbs that I picked, right? It has it like, it's extremely gender stereotyped. Um, 
uh, uh, and then, are, then the men are like, I killed this thing and I drank it's first thing I do drink it's blood. Right. They're obsessed with like for the first like five seasons or whatever, nobody kills a large animal. And it, and it clearly is like each season, like the goal of contestants is to be the first <sighs> one to fucking kill a big animal. And then it, you know, happens in like season five or something like that. Totally psycho shit. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. And people eat a lot of, you know, field mice basically. Um, <laughs> But it, anyway, like something that I think is like, there's also a version, there could be a version of this chapter, right? First of all, there could be a version of this chapter in which Loon had just been kidnapped, right? Right. Um, and not, you know, not because he's trying to rescue Elga. Um, and I will say we see nothing mm. of Elga here, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, occasionally he encounters her, but because of the gender segregation, um, and we don't have any cuts to like learn about her experience at all. Like we just don't see that yeah. at all. Um, but there could be, there could just be the story of like Loon um, gets kidnapped and then escapes, right? Or there could be a story, you know, in which it's Loon figures out how to get Elga out and then the two of them like flee together, right? But instead we get this like very rich story about people and weirdly different kinds of people like working together to make something mm -hmm. happen, you know? Yeah. And and it is particularly surprising because like for up to this point in the book, I think that like, it's very hard not to think about Thorne as a really old man because that's what Loon thinks he is. And, you know, that, you know, that seems to be how everybody treats him. He's just that old shaman or whatever. But, you know, like he like, whatever, runs without ceasing over <laughs> For many, like this extraordinary distance, um, you know, like well, when he le when he leaves, Heather's like, "Come back, we need you," and he's like, "I'll be gone for two months maximum," and I'm just like, <laughs> two months." <laughs> Exactly. It's crazy. Maybe Schist, maybe Schist and Ibex have the right idea. Like, fuck <laughs> this kid. Crazy. He's doing something crazy. And he's going with just like, you know, with this like big old Neanderthal guy who he can't even talk to. He's like, that guy's head is a really weird shape, you know. And at night they sit around the fire and like, you know, play some rounds on the, the flute. And then, um, but yeah, so, so like the <laughs> sort of like it's not, it is this amazing like rescue story. And it's, I think this is a super exciting and dynamic yeah. chapter, but it also is really about like, you know, Thorne goes to get Loon because he see, he sees a commitment to, to Loon, of course, but also to Elga that it, you know, that there was something that was wrong and having her taken away. He goes to get them. We don't really know why Click goes along other than like he is grateful to Heather for having helped him out and maybe he's bored or whatever it is. Um, Just a good dude. He's a good dude. He seems like a good dude. Um, but they like, you know, they do this together, right? And then the escape is them all together. And it's just like such a different story about what it means to survive. You know, when yeah. they're on that ice flow, like, you know, the, the Jende guys are like, this is the way that you're going to crawl across the black ice. You're going to hold these things. Watch me do it. You know, do not fuck up. And we're going to go first, by the way. And then yeah. you're on your own. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The one time when he like helps the, uh, brawn, uh, uh, you know, get, puts him on his sled. And then the, the Jende are like, why'd you help that guy? Leave him alone. It's not your business. Like that's our business. You leave that guy alone. Um, I was going to mention too, like the way that the Jende, you know, one thing that actually there's two things, I guess, because um, during the 
during this long winter where they spend mostly indoors, um, Loon notes that like every day when that the every day that the winds allowed the men went out hunting and fishing and trapping. Loon didn't know what to make of that, so they do trap. So anyway, um, Loon didn't know what to make of that. Probably they were just, they just like to be doing things. They did have more kids in their pack than most packs in the South had. And sometimes they stole wives from other packs, as he very well knew. Maybe having so much food made them want for other things to do. Maybe they wanted a lot of kids, wanted to increase their number. Um, so um, they're still constantly like producing and going out and doing stuff. Um, and then they also have a completely different attitude toward um like death and injury too. They're laughing all the time. Like, like at, not only at injury and death, but they're like, they're a laughing people. Um, they're like fat and happy essentially. Um, and so that's something too, that's kind of interesting in terms of um, what the kind of abundance that they have yeah, yeah. Allow, like, allows them to, the attitude that allows them to have in the world. Um, one of um, but also the fact that like, Hey, they could be out on the ice and just suddenly it breaks off and there's literally nothing to do, but wait and see if you're going to get blown back to shore or get pushed out farther to sea and no one will ever see you again. Yeah. And that's yeah. just kind of the life that they have. And so what can you do, but laugh at it. And it's facing up to Narsuk, right? To Narsuk. Like they bring right. that, right, right. right. But I think, I mean, and it's interesting because it gives like being with these people, because I feel like we've heard facing up to Narsuk before, obviously, and and usually in situations that are like situations of just extremity, like, well, mm -hmm. what do you, you got to face up? Um, but, but what you were just saying, it just struck me like, yeah, I mean, they can, you know, if this is the culture where facing up to Narsuk comes from, like, um, it's a culture that like, you know, has this very mm. strange mix of like a great deal of security in certain ways and then an extraordinary, you know, like an environmental vulnerability in other ways, right? So like, you know, they're kind of laughing in the face of death is like also about, you know, like um, uh, we have, you know, we've, we have a ton of food and we're not going to starve, right? Um, we might drift away on an ice flow or be eaten by an ice bear or, you know, just fall in. seems like, you know, the number one likelihood, um, but we're not going to starve. Uh, you know, like it's interesting because it means that because they're not going to starve and because they have these very sturdy homes that they live in that are extremely well heated, which is interesting too. I was going to mention that like, not only do they, the outdoors lets them refrigerate their own food, but the fact, but the fat, uh, is this source of, of energy period, like energy yeah. for yeah, like yeah. to consume as food or energy to burn. So they have this abundance of cold to keep their food, uh, cold. And they have this abundance of heat, uh, that they get from the fat, which the cold lets them keep. So it's an amazing kind of economy right. that they've got right, a very calorie rich economy. Yeah. Yeah. And so because of that, um, and I want to contrast this to the wolf pack because that they're calorie rich, they can afford to be risky in other ways. Mm. And then if you die as a, as a result of this risk of going out on the ice or whatever, then you have only yourself to blame. Then it's like, or then you have like the gods to blame. And then what is the alternative to do, but laugh at that because oops, like, yeah, haha, I could have lived forever eating the fat, the seal skin fat out of these bags, 
but um, instead I fell through the ice, ha, ha, ha. Whereas for the Wolfpack, it's everything that they do all year long is to make sure they have enough food for the winter. Right, right, right. Including eating. Like once it gets time, like August, September, you're just eating constantly to stack on fat so you can like survive through the winter on only a handful of like nuts every day that are getting more and more gross and fermented and Mm. bitter. Um, So that for them, death is a lot more tragic. I mean, we had that like death sequence of when the woman uh, died like swan or owl or ducky. whatever her ducky. There you go. I knew it was a bird. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, like very different attitudes toward like life and death and all that. I mean, and, and as we were talking about the, um, in an earlier episode, I mean, for the wolf pack, like hunger is built in like, and that mm-hmm. it's not an extraordinary situation. Like there are worse years, and better years. There are years when when supplies hold out better, and there are years when supplies don't hold out. There are years when spring comes um, earlier or later, right? Um, so it's not so it's not like um, it's not like they can't be an extremity, but like the very rhythm of their year, um, the very you know the rhythm of their seasons includes like fatness and thinness, right? Includes these like major bodily transformations, includes being full and being hungry. Um, you know, like that, that's not, um, that's not like, because they live at like a bare minimum. That's like, that is the pattern of the year. Right. And Mm -hmm. they're like the way in which they are fed, um, corresponds to the time of year and what's available. That's like an expect, that's an expectation, right? So like, you know, um, things can go wrong. And also we know from the character of Schist that like, it maybe is not as easy to calculate out how much food you, how much mm-hmm. food you need as, as Schist seems to think that it is, right? Um, but that's like really different than the Northers who um, can always, who first of all, need to have a good layer of fat on them 10 months of the year, Right. So we, so, right. so presumably they don't actually change their eating, their, their eating pattern doesn't change seasonally. Presumably they need to eat a lot all the time because they have to have a nice layer of body fat in order to be able to withstand the weather at all. So then, and their, their year seasonally is just really different. Right. I mean, this like extremely long winter and then this very short, not warm <laughs> melt right and then it gets cold again and those like those large scale those things seem to also have a great deal to do with like the difference in like cultural tendencies and the sense of like different personalities or whatever it may be in these packs you know like because it would be tempting to think of like I mean, there are these analogies to like the way we live in the way that the Jende live, right? In that, like, in that, like, they have freezers and they have central heating, um, and in that they are like calorie rich, you know. Right. So, I mean, the way that we that is, you know, in the global north live, right? Yes. Um, or, you know, those of us in the global north who have a make a wage live. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but also there's this real difference too, right? Because like that mode of living that they're in is like precisely the condition of survivability where they are, you know, you can't like, it's not transportable into any kind of climate, right? It like exists um, uh, like in this, in this very specific, very, very specific 
place. Yeah, um, it's ge which, geographically determinative. Um, I really wanted to talk about the um, the one the ritual that we see that yeah. Lune goes um, with them on. I mean, I don't have a like a thing to say about this. I just I think it's very cool and um, uh, fascinating. So on they see the place where they're going. Um, on page 273, um, and I, I just liked this like um, initial sighting of it. Uh, one of the Jende men named Orn made apologies to the great windy ice. Then he pointed north. There on the horizon was a low black prominence. That was their destination. The Nuna, they named it. A rock island in a sea of ice. The pupil of the eye, they called it, pointing at their squinting eyes. It was the reverse of the ice caps on the hills to the west of the Wolfpack's camp. I mean, just like this, such a beautiful image. And also the idea of like, you know, you make this ritual journey, like to the pupil in the eye. I mean, mm -hmm. that's just, I, I think that that like, is like this kind of amazing. Um, yeah, I think that's an amazing idea. Um, and then as they get close to the island, like it is like, um, uh, there are frozen waves up all around it. So like accessing it is very hard. Um, and they walk around to find the place, a place where they think that they're going to be able to climb up, but they actually, it's too sheer. They can't climb up there. So then they walk back around underneath the sort of like um, uh, curve of the frozen waves um, next to the island, just like in- right an extraordinary extraordinary image also like a surfing image right like yeah 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 that's right <laughs> uh but i think like so uh yeah something about that is just like so vivid and um beautiful and then they climb um they climb these uh, blocks of dark red stone up um uh, and by the time they, I'm on 274 here, by the time they reached the center of the Nuna, they were two or three trees height above the ice. The tops of all the red blocks were smooth to a polish with straight lines scoring the polish north and south. There are also crescent breaks, the shape of day three or four of the moon cut into the rock. Small shallow gaps between the red blocks were filled with scree and sand that was dotted with black lichen, the only living thing on the island. Um, a uh, uh, so they, they get up at the top, a turn of the head gave Loon the ring of the whole earth, its Western edge blazing with sun blink. The ice below them was a creamy blue marked by patches of white lined with gray lines of broken stone that they had walked in a single day onto this new world was astonishing. The stories at home all spoke of three worlds, one inside the earth, one in the sky, one on the surface between them. Lunan had glimpses of all three, but here the Northers had simply walked north onto a fourth world, bulking over the earth, a higher realm, a frozen sky. And in the center of the Nuna is um, a ring of stones, um, and they build, a, they build a fire in the center um, on a, a square boulder um, there. Um, they dripped fat from a bag onto the branches and soon a fire had sparked to life. On the fire, they burned the wing of an eagle and the wing of a raven while singing in their harsh voices. When the fire was at its biggest, though still nearly invisible in the glare of the sun and the sky and the ice, 
Orn took a red swath of cloth from his back sack and unwrapped it to reveal a human skull, missing its jaw, but otherwise clean and fresh. He held it up to look at the sun one last time, and all of them likewise looked right at the sun, eyes closed, singing together. Then Orn put the skull on the fire, and they watched as it blackened, and when they had poured some fat on it, burned as well, not like wood, but like the tip of a giant lamp wick. As with a wick, it took a long time to burn away. White flame danced in its eye sockets and out of its gaping mouth as if it were comfortable living in fire, but eventually it broke and fell onto itself and joined the embers under it. As the fire burned itself out, the skull became no more than black chunks like the other bits of char there in the ash. When the fire went out, the men strewed the ashes gently, waited again. In the frigid chill of the breeze out of the north, the heat quickly left the ashes, and as soon as they were cool enough to handle, the northers all scooped up double handfuls and carried them outstretched to the ring of stones, where they walked around the outside of the circle and stopped to sing at each of the cardinal points, after which they surrounded one of their company and tossed their ashes into the air, such that the wind caught the ashes and blew them over this man. He held his arms out and his face up and took the rain of ash on him as if he wanted it. Uh, and then after that, they move over to the side of the cliff and scare the puffins and then do divination from the way that they fly. But that um, that just like the, the image of this place, um, this combination of like made and natural, um, that loons feeling that they've entered a fourth world Um uh, and then the ritual is just like amazing, right? This mm -hmm. is this amazing ritual. And it is this kind of like glimpse that like we know so little of their mm -hmm. culture, you know, and clearly this is some kind of like death and rebirth ritual, presumably, right? Um, although I guess we don't really know that, but burning the skull and then covering one of them in the ashes from the skull um, under all under this intense bright sun, you know, Uh it's so cool. It's really like, um, it just feels like the songs in here. This is just something that feels so vivid. Right. You know, and not like, you know, not like just like a kind of, hey, but this is what a ritual would be like. <laughs> I mean, it's like intensely specific and like beautiful. Yeah. And, yeah. and kind of metal too. I like the metal quality. Oh, yeah. Burning the skull. Hold up a <laughs> skull and burn it. Um. Yeah, there's no drums though. There's not enough drums in That's this uh, sequence. Um, yeah, super cool. And then do the the yeah the divination of the birds after that. That's that's always uh, that's a that's a very metal thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Super badass. Um, yeah, this is cool. Um, <laughs> what can I say? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I love uh, the the. I'm really um, just their description of the houses, their buildings are so interesting too. Like the platform, like there's the entryway and then the lower level and then the upper level mm -hmm. and then I, or the then upper, upper levels and how hot it is and how yeah. everyone's just sweating and glistening in there all like round and fat and like happy um, and super warm. And they're like really big houses too. It's just, um, yeah, it's just a really amazing sort of um, enlightening vision of of something that you probably, you know, when you think about cavemen, what do you even think about, like how yeah, they lived, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah, it's like so elaborate and so specific and the kind of, um, I just think there is this very complicated play of, you know, 
Loon trying to figure out cultural differences, trying to figure out what's the same, what's different, trying to understand why they work the way that he thinks that they do from their perspective. You know, us as the reader trying to do our own navigation of it, like what's our own point of view on these people? You know, are they like us? Are they not like us? Um, and then that, you know, and then also this is such a satisfying chapter also because uh, like it ends with this extremely dramatic rescue scene performed mm-hmm. by this like hilarious odd couple, like, you know, Thorn and Click. <laughs> well, yeah. And then like, that was another thing I had a question about is like, um, or just that, you know, Thorn as this old ancient man of like 40 years old, um, they have to, they, 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 you know, they make it all the way up there and then they have to make it all the way back. And like, they don't have a lot of food and they've already been through the hunger spring. And like, you know, it, there's just the, the cards are stacked against them so much. So you're really with them in terms of just the hardship that they're about to yeah. sort of endure. And then of course, bad leg and like, you know, and Elga doesn't even have, doesn't have the proper clothes, clothes. or, or proper um, shoes. Yeah. No, it's just like, these guys are screwed. I think they're, I I don't think they're going to make it, Hillary. It's It's crazy. The odds are stacked against them. And, you know, also like, um, you know, this whole section of the book, the end of the chapter before this one is them getting through, the wolf pack getting through just a horrible hunger spring. Um, uh, This chapter is so much about like food and abundance, but also like food taboos because the Northers have these like extremely complicated food taboos that Loon assumes comes because they have so much food that they can be pickier about what parts of it they eat. Um, they, or, and also cause they're more hierarchical. So they distribute food in, in different and somewhat more complicated ways. And then this I was just a- going to say the next chapter ends up being about food and taboo. Also. Well, this is a, th- that's a, that's brings up a point where, and we should probably end, but yeah, the next chapter, I mean, in general, so much of uh, KSR's novels is devoted to metabolics uh, or metabol yeah. metabolysis or something like the human metabolic relationship to nature. Yeah. Um, but like the, the food taboos of the Jende honestly don't seem that many much more strict pro many more prohibitions than the wolf pack does I, like i agree because elga agree. at one point at one point is overwhelmed by the number of rules they have yeah um and there's a list or there's a song or something about which parts go to which type of people and then like loon's list that he gives of the Jende's prohibitions are like basically the same yeah. so there's another area in which you know you wish you had a chapter on uh, on elga um from her point of view to like balance yeah. out that kind of because loon you know, they don't seem to be prohibitions because they're his prohibitions. They're, they don't right. appear to be ideological because he's within the system right. of the wolf pack. Whereas when he's with the Jende, they do appear ideological. Like, why do you have all these stupid rules? Um, and so there's another like kind of area where um, the kind of focus on uh, only from Loon's point of view. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and also because Elga would be, Elga would be interesting because she is, um, you know, of the, of the people who we spend time with in the book, like she's the most like pippy in some ways, because mm-hmm. she has, we know that she lived on her own for a while and she's lived in multiple different packs. 
So she must have like, you know, she must have a kind of comparative perspective. Um, but we don't, we really don't, yeah, we don't get that, right? Um, you know, we we can, you know, we can assume that she has it. But yeah. I think that point is really right that like, I also had that same thought of like, well, is this actually more versions yeah. of taboo than they have? Uh, and that just made me think of how um, when uh, Loon and Pippi at the very beginning as they're walking along, um, I think Pippi compares the Northers to otters mm-hmm. um, and, and Loon is like, oh, because, uh, you know, otters are so freaky because of their just like, you know, sleek violence. Um, uh, but then like when, um, when Thorn and uh, Click come in, they come in like otters, right? So I think, you know, I think the, the comparative is balanced by the idea of, you know, ultimately like, you know, this kind of common common humanity that's about like response to conditions, um, you know, the need to survive things together, right? I mean, and it looks different, um, uh, you know, uh, but but in but in fact, like there are these like really strong kinds of parallel relationships. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Could you hear uh, Milton meowing in the background? Uh, no, I was, which one is on camera now? It's Louise. Louise. I was taking, I was taking screen grabs of, uh, this image because you're both staring right at the camera. It's very good. She Uh, really could make this a Christmas card. Probably. (laughs) It's a perfect Christmas card. Hillary and Matt wishing you a Merry Christmas in April, (laughs) right on the verge of spring. Yeah. Um, it's, it's spring here, man. It's like 70 degrees here. Well, it's in the fifties here and it's, you know, I was listening to, um, as we wrap up, I was listening to main public radio yesterday about, uh, the gardening episode about everyone getting excited to get their gardens going. And they were talking about how, uh, gardening season in Maine starts on Memorial day. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Because yeah. it, it's also accurate because, um, I, I was looking through like my old photos on Instagram and a year ago on like April 17th, it snowed like three inches or something like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it could still snow here too, but I think it may not. And I did plant peas and radishes yesterday. Oh, well, the peas and, will be fine. Yeah. I think the radishes will be fine too. And the radishes. Yeah. 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 They should cool. be fine. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. This good is fun. stuff. This is fun stuff. A, I'm really enjoying talking about this book. Next time hunted. Yes, I am too. It's an enjoyable book to talk about uh, and to read uh, <laughs> with you and to have our listeners listen to our show and uh, enjoy yes. it on Marooned on Mars. Marooned on Mars. Oh, I saw we have a new um, supporter on anchor. Oh, I have forgotten uh, their name, but Thank you. That Thanks. is incredibly nice of you. That is incredibly nice of you to support our show. You don't have to do that, but we do definitely appreciate it. And we should probably, you know, invest some money into the show and like uh, buy special microphones or something. But I don't even know why we would need to do that. Yeah, I don't know. We, I'm sure. We already have microphones. We, I, yeah. I mean, we could at some point, you know, we should make like stickers or something and, and send them to people. Sure. Yeah, we can no. definitely do that. I think we can ask we can ask our friend Bill to help us with that. It might not be yeah. something that you and I are the best suited to do. I'm bad at design <laughs> of any kind. Um, Maroon on Mars 
podcast at gmail.com and at podcast on Mars on Twitter is where you can follow us. And we'll be back as soon as possible with the next chapter hunted, which is um, as uh, the title indicates when they will be hunted by the Jende people. It's a harrowing, harrowing chapter. It's a very exciting chapter. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. That'll be awesome. That'll be awesome. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.